Security is big business, but has the role of securing networks and employees bloated to the point that businesses cannot properly protect themselves? Or is the speed of business moving too fast to care? On a roundtable episode with Beth Ann Bygum, CISO at Axiom, and Anthony McMahon, CIO, CTO, and Principal Consultant for Target State Consultants, the two discussed a host of topics, including if technology was moving too quickly for security measures to matter. We have to move at the speed of the business anymore because the ability to access and purchase, integrate, buy, share is extremely fluid. It means, number one, we have to constantly press ourselves to be more efficient. Number two, we have to constantly ask ourselves, is our defense fabric, the set of tools we use, even keeping the pace with the tools my development teams are using? On this episode of IT Visionaries, our security series continues as Beth Ann and Anthony take a look at why implementing proper security hygiene practices remains crucial to ensure better overall security. The two also touch on why security officials are having to constantly defend against attackers at the code level and why that problem can be solved by architects designing with security in mind. Enjoy. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the world's most trusted low-code platform. Enhance trust, compliance, and governance across all your apps with Salesforce security. Learn more at salesforce.com slash data security. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today, we continue our security series. We have two special guests with us, Beth Ann Bygum. She's the Vice President, Chief Security and Compliance Officer at Axiom. Anthony McMahon, CTO, CIO, and Principal Consultant at Target State Consulting are both on our show. And like we always do, in case no one knows exactly what you guys do, I'm going to ask each of you individually to you know say hello and tell us what it is your company does. Ladies first. Sorry, Anthony. Beth Ann, I'll kick it to you. Albert, thanks so much for having me today. And I appreciate the time to just talk to uh, professionals in the space. Yeah. So, um, you know, Axiom is uh, well known for our ability to uh, translate the needs of customer and customer insights. We are a data and technology company. And um, I have the privilege of working with um, some really powerful, insightful individuals that understand analytics, data, and uh, the digital landscape. Um, been 26, in, uh, 26 years in IT, the last 13 in something related to cyber or all things cyber uh, or audit. And then, you know, when you think about that journey um, moving through IT into compliance, into audit, I think it was uh, Corn Ferry years ago that introduced the concept of the archetype. So my journey to this place was through the uh, GRC archetype until I started receiving audit findings against my SDLC practices. And I'm like, forget it. All things digital, all things code. We are defending at the code level. So I did a massive shift. I'm sure we'll talk more about this later, but yeah, I just, I, I enjoy the journey that I'm on now with our teams at Axiom, powerful group and, um, you know, they understand hygiene. So we'll, we'll dive into that later. Yeah. And I definitely want to learn more about it. And just for Axiom, if I'm not mistaken, Axiom has like a tremendous amount of purchase and buying behavior data. Isn't that accurate? I, I believe that's accurate. Yeah. It's, it's a really strong um, solution for understanding trends. <laughs> there you go. We'll be sure to touch on that in just a moment. Anthony. Go and introduce yourself. Uh, thanks, Albert. And look, thanks for having me on the show as well. Great to be here with you both and uh, talking to your audience as well. 
So Anthony McMahon, as most of your listeners will probably pick up from your accent, I'm not from America. Um, I'm a New Zealander. I'm a Kiwi. And I've got around 20 years experience in, in IT as well. My background's been more the service management and enterprise architecture side. Spent a lot of time working in one of New Zealand's larger banks and sort of building a career that way. But I've also experienced some time in risk management and incident management as well. So the focus on that has started uh, for, for me has been to shift towards helping mid-sized New Zealand businesses. Now that scale for mid-sized New Zealand businesses is probably a smaller medium for, for many other countries, but helping them understand good security posture, good security controls, and also just de-risking their business in some way and helping them get prepared for the inevitable when, not if, when it comes to a cybersecurity issue. So the brand I'm here with, Target State Consulting, is a very small company for, for, for me, but one that I'm incredibly proud of as well. Well, listen, you guys are both, this is going to be a great perspective. On one side, we have, like I'm going to say Beth Ann, you're like on the enterprise side, you know, handling massive amounts of data, tons of customers. Anthony, you get to help a lot of companies that want to, that may not have the knowledge and expertise. So it's really great to hear from both dimensions. And one of the things that spurned, or it's not one of the things, but I mean, it's pretty clear and evident most people who read the news, I actually had the news pulled up in front of me right now. All I did was type in cyber attack. Go ahead. Whenever you want anyone out there, just go ahead, type in the word cyber attack inside of Google search news. Uh, I don't think you'll find any articles older than a day. Uh, we got you know people warning of cyber threats to Ireland's energy and telecoms. That's article one. Next thing is how to secure cities from cyber attacks. That's two. That's Bloomberg, right? And then Germany just thwarted a cyber attack, a nice impact on the banking system. So Anthony, the German bank system just got attacked. And then the fourth article, CNBC, increase in ransomware attacks absolutely aligns with the rise of crypto, according to FireEye's CEO. Point being, is we see more incidences all the time. I'm curious, we'll start with Beth Ann, and why do you think incidences are, are more, are just increasing more often? Is it because people are paying out? That's one of the, my, my hypotheses, because now you're hearing about actually payouts being paid. I'm curious. What is happening? Because uh, you know it does feel like, or is it just the news cycle that these attacks are happening more? I'd love to hear your guys' perspectives. Do you think it's happening more? Do you think it's not happening more? Curious. And then what is the environmental factor, or if, if any, that's causing this? Well, these are great questions, Albert. I, I'm going to break it down into maybe smaller increments. Number one, we have just an increased reliance on the digital landscape, right? So that increased reliance is going to create a bigger uh, footprint. Two, you know, the threat actors, this is a professional business, yeah. right? And they, under, they understand architecture, they understand engineering, mm. they understand points of weakness, and they have the ability to be single-threaded, single-focused, right? You know, I, I'm in the office, I got, I got uh, lines of business, I got strategy, I got blah, blah, you know, but they're <laughs> able to stay focused, right? They could just single-focus, single-thread. They don't have to influence people to get their job done. And they're using, I like the fact that, Anthony, uh, you are coming in from service management. Well, we've got service a la carte in the threat landscape. And you get surveys, you get feedback, you get points, you get ratings, right? So this is, this is a business. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing is as defenders uh, in organizations, we also have to look at that in a similar way, right? And that goes to my starting opening point around when I made the pivot to realize, you know, this is not an exercise where I have policies and standards and GRC and risk. No, I'm defending at the code level. Yeah. Uh, I have to understand hygiene. 
I understand the audit landscape. And so I understand the purpose of frameworks, but at the end of the day, it's about hygiene, right? And I'm, we're constantly going over and over and over against critical hygiene aspects. So when you peel back the thread and you look at the supply chain attacks, it, they all route back to hygiene, right? And so the question becomes is, when will hygiene stop being viewed as boring and become viewed as sexy because hygiene is the new sexy? <laughs> and what do you mean by hygiene? Well, <laughs> hygiene uh, from a technical perspective or all, just all those good principles that we learned in college, right? Good system engineering is you patching, you stay current on patching, you check your configuration. Everything that's part of your standard operations is what you would consider part of good, oper- you know, good hygiene. And then, gotcha. you know, as, as companies evolve and they become more reliant on digital, uh, I'm sorry, you know, next generation development capabilities, the, those hygiene capabilities just become developed or programmed or designed into how they work, right? You can't have the practice sitting outside of the way you work. It has to be part of how you work. Otherwise, we're not going to win the battle at all. No, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, I'd love to hear your perspective as well. What is what is happening? You know, I, I, I agree with Beth Ann. It's just because we are de- so dependent on digital assets, that inherently makes a digital asset more valuable, therefore worth taking. That's certainly part of it. I'd love to hear your perspective as well. Yeah, definitely. And, and look, I agree with everything Beth Ann had to say in there from, from the hygiene perspective. But I just want to bring it back into your, one of the earlier questions you had there, Albert, about why are we seeing more of these and why are we encountering more and more of these? And I think it is, there's a couple of things that are playing into that. One is that if you go back 10, 15 years, digital wasn't as prevalent as it is now um, in many companies, but hacking and cyber attacks were more covert. You know, people sneaking in the back door, stealing the information, yeah. and then maybe selling that information on um, the dark web for cents in the dollar. And the value was in the information they could get. Whereas now we're seeing a point where the value is actually not in the information. It's actually in preventing someone from being able to do their job and having them pay up for it. And I'm talking about ransomware attacks in that regard. Sure. Where it's a hugely valuable industry. And these guys who we're trying to fight against or trying to defend against have their own structures, their own, um, their own funding in some cases, uh, they've got a whole backing behind them to just go out and disrupt and make it as hard as possible. And because of that, we're constantly playing a catch-up game with them. And, and that's where I come back to Beth Ann's point about hygiene, is that if we want to catch up, if we want to stay as secure as we can, hygiene and best practice has got to be part of our culture rather than that little bit to the side that, that someone else is trying to influence from, from outside the border team. So what do you mean by it's got to be part of your culture? Because I mean, I can say all I want that I want to be, you know, cleaner code, more secure protocols. What do you mean by it's got to be part of your culture? Because I agree, if, you know, that's like, it's the equivalent of someone saying, oh, we want a policy of good customer service. Like, well, unless you do something about it, your customer service won't change at all, right? Like you have to actually actively do something. Totally. <laughs> I get it. What does it mean though, to be part of the culture? And, uh, and what are the things that a good company that is very focused on cybersecurity, what, is, what does that mean in their culture? What are they doing? To, to demonstrate that, to, to actually implement it, if you will. Yeah, and, and that's a really, I sort of set myself up, I walked into that one, didn't I? But, <laughs> by putting, because it's, it's a hard one to articulate, what does a good company look like? But for me, it's, I guess we, we talk about this a lot with the clients I work with and with some of the peers that I constantly catch up with. I've got a good network of people here in New Zealand and offshore as well that I'm talking to. I think we've 
slowly seeing a change in this regard, but it's, it's to, to embed it in the right culture. We've got to move away from the, the push down, thou shalt not, here's a set of policies, follow the policies or you'll be in trouble and HR will be having a word with you. And actually get more into that, that storytelling and that articulating of we do this because and put a, a real spin on it and explain to um, our people and the people we're working with, the people in our company, that the reason we're doing something that may make their job a bit harder is actually to make sure they have a job in the future. Because if they don't get it right today and, they, and the business suffers an attack, it's very unlikely they're ever going to recover from that. So it's, it's sort of tying it back into the what's in it for me and using a lot of the, the change practices that technology delivery has been adopting over the last decade, but is slowly now starting to seep into cybersecurity as well. Follow a proper change practice when you're, uh, when you're implementing controls, when you're implementing process and policy, and actually bring your people on the journey so that they understand and get them to buy into it as well and, and make suggestions rather than just dictating from the top that the board has, has mandated we must do this and therefore we're doing this. You know, get away from that attitude. Bethan, do you see that in your organization? Because you, you know, Axiom is obviously a very large company. It's like, is that part of the culture? How does it work? I agree uh, with what Anthony said. I maybe pull the thread a little bit more. It's around that it's the ownership piece, right? I, I think we have to walk away from the concept that security is the central group that does all this cool stuff and protects it. Yeah, it's the CISO guys. The CISO and their team, they got it all. Yeah, no, no, no. Everybody owns security. And at the point that was said earlier about how do you translate, how do you tell it in a story is, you know, our, our role is to tell the story in a way that resonates for each lens. Each lens has a different view on security. And we have to tell the story so that it resonates with that lens. And then it helps the individual pick up the gauntlet, if you will, carry it, right? They have to carry their part of this defense journey. And that's what the culture is. So, mm. you know, and, and it spans the gamut between our develop, you know, developers and engineers, they don't understand what does brute force testing look like? Like, what are those scenarios? What are those use cases that have to be incorporated? What should that, what should that include? You know, from there, all the way down to sitting with the, you know, corporate functions folks from business email compromise and helping them understand how their profiles become of interest, mm. right? It, it's just, our job becomes more of an interpreter to help each lens understand their role in the culture, in defense. And, you know, one of the things, you know, that I think about when I think about what you guys are talking about. So, you know, a culture that really, really cares, but there's always, and we, we talked about in the previous episodes with some of our guests is like, there's just this financial pressure <laughs> for many people inside the organization to move fast. <laughs> and I think, you know, this right move fast. Yep. So let's do some examples that we talked about. Something as simple as implementing vendor technology. That is something that, you know, we all know that every company is now relying on who knows how many pieces of technology. An, an insane amount, right? The reality is your company can't really vet how secure the vendor's technology is. There's usually someone on the other side, like a user or, you know, a project lead that's like, hey, I need this. I need this to do my job. Get it installed. Get it connected. Oh, I need data from our database to flow into this because it's going to do something. You know, Bethany, someone might come to you and say, like, I need to run, you know, a big query on these credit card numbers because I need to figure something out for whatever. My, you know, my business leader, a VP just told me I had to do it. So 
inside of an organization, there's always this pressure of money and time is money. So we need to make money. We need to do it fast, which of course I would say butt heads in the, the hygiene part, which is how to be thorough, how to make sure things are implemented properly. How does a company deal with that? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I'll tell you right now, like I remember being on the vendor, I've, I've been on both sides where I've been on the vendor side trying to implement software and I have to go through like a security review and I'm like, oh my God, this is going to take forever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I've also been on the other side, which is I'm a user of a technology. It's going through a super security review. I'm like, this is going to take forever. What is going on here? I, can I, why can't we just install it? <laughs> yeah. No, uh, Albert, it requires the CISO to constantly force improvement. Like we have to move at the speed of the business anymore because, and this is a, that's an old statement, but it's so meaningful now to your examples because the ability to access and purchase, integrate, buy, share is extremely fluid. It means number one, we have to constantly press ourselves to be more efficient. Number two, we have to constantly ask ourselves, is our defense fabric, the set of tools we use, even keeping the pace with the tools my development teams are using. And there's some cases where I'm actually, you know, we go and we, we have to look at newer technology. Some of the startups have more fluid, capable solutions than, you know, some of the seasoned solutions out there. So we, we constantly have to question. And for me, I think there's this challenge around how do I move from the no guy to the yes guy, right? Mm-hmm. Or gal, whatever. But yeah, I'm sorry. But the new guy, yes, but you know, I have to find that dialogue. Yeah. And then train the team, you know, how to come to yes, how to find the yes. Mm. So it's it's not yes, but it's yes in a secure way. The biggest area that this is placing pressure on is skills development. And I'll share you an example. Your example of having to do a risk assessment, the GRC space in a traditional information security organization is traditionally the slower or last area to upskill in technology. Hmm. We assess risk at the digital, don't understand how to evaluate contracts, connections, architecture diagrams. We're not really assessing it well. Yeah. So if I'm in governance, risk, and compliance, you're saying I'm the least trained or upskilled? Well, I apologize. But we do have to invest in (laughs) applying the understanding of technology and how to assess risk on the technical landscape is as important of a skill investment for our risk and compliance teams as our engineering teams. How about that one? I mean, (laughs) I like I like the first one first. Anthony, why is that? What I agree 100 percent. But like we also know that tools today basically come by de facto. They depend on information from somewhere else. That's how all tools are now. There is no like software service out there. I feel, at least I don't feel that way. That's like, it doesn't integrate with something. They all integrate with everything, right? If you're in the business of transactions, online transactions, what's on your online store? Well, every time someone types in a credit card, uh, you got like advertising trackers, you got, uh, you know, optimization trackers, you got analytics trackers, like tons of tools are taking information and flowing them into different places to do things. So what is, you know, I don't disagree with Bethann is probably a, you know, a lack of skill or knowledge in the GRC component. How do companies start accounting for that? Because that's going to be a continuing problem. 
the tools today, every tool engineered today is designed to open and communicate with another tool. That's 100% happening right now. 100%. And, and look, I, funnily enough, just yesterday, I was working with a client uh, facilitating a privacy audit for them that they needed to run to satisfy investor conditions. Money invested in that company was basically needing this to be done before it could be handed over. And we actually got into an architectural conversation in that session. You know, it was being run by a, a privacy expert. We'd brought her in and, and outsourced a privacy expert there. But we got into that architectural view because on the surface, we looked at it and went, you know what, from, from a privacy perspective, we hold information in HubSpot. That's our CRM. That's where all of our customer data goes. Yeah. And then we realized that, well, hang on a minute. Some of that customer data gets passed off into our service management tool. Some of that customer data, um, when they transact, they go to our website, they're filtered in, it exists in HubSpot, then they hit buy and they get sent to an e-commerce engine and that e-commerce engine also talks to Stripe. Yeah. <laughs> and so suddenly this, this journey, which looked really simple, was actually quite complex in the data that, that was being passed around. And then we, we were getting into the, the conversation of, well, we use Stripe. Do we have to show that we are PCI DSS compliant or do we just have to show that we use Stripe, which is PCI DSS compliant? And had we not got into that conversation, we could have missed an entire segment of what the business does. And to where Beth Ann was saying, I think with, with GRC and the training and the understanding and, and the need to bring it down to that technical layer, there's more to it than that as well, is that those functions in a business, whether it be risk, compliance or security, they can't be the last team that's engaged in a journey anymore. Mm. We've got to engage them from the start. Security by design, you know, it's, it's no longer a non-functional requirement that, that we'll get signed off from the security team four days before go live. <laughs> Security's got to be there from the start so that they can be the ministry of yes, um, or the guy or the girl of yes, as, as Beth Ann said. You know, if, if we leave them to the last minute, of course, they're going to sit there and go, you want to go live in four days and you've just engaged us and our process takes three months from start to finish. Yeah. It ain't happening. It ain't happening, team. You know? But if you brought them in 18 months ago when you started this journey, they would have put themselves on the critical path and, and suddenly the whole thing changes. They've gone from being this barrier to, to being this enabler of change in the organization. And I mean, the more we can do that, the more we can bring the right people in at the start or the right skills, the right focus, the better it's going to be because we can build that architectural map on the beginning to say, what does our target operating model look like? What systems are we using to deliver those phases? And how do we protect the information that's flowing through those systems so that we don't find ourselves on the front page of tomorrow's uh, newspaper? Let's take a quick pause to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Now, let's get back to the conversation. I'm going to tell you guys both a story. I won't name the company, but to your, your point about like that four days prior, is exactly so on the vendor side i was on the vendor side we had a product that could read what people were doing on the page and we could then use it in remarketing and targeting and all that good stuff and we got there was a high pressure to install it like there was a lot of pressure to install it and this company huge company by the way i, I won't reveal the company but we'll say they're in the mortgage business so high, sensitive financial data people are typing in credit scores or typing in how much money they make like there's sensitive data right we secured it there's no problem but it was funny because you mentioned that the security team called like 30 days. It was like easily 30 days after we were installed and said, you got to take it off. So we just noticed you're able to write the credit card data, take it off. Right. And they took it off, which is fine. But I was like amazed that they was, this is like install first, ask, you know, shoot first, ask questions later. That's exactly what they did because <laughs> of the pressure. Yeah. But that goes back to the culture piece, right? 
For our job, we have to teach how to test and vet that. This, this is all about, it has to be integrated now. Number one, and I'm constantly asking the team, you know, well, we used to have like four different assessments. I just, I can't even, it's, it like makes me like start like twitching because <laughs> like, why, why do we have, so we have to, we have, that's why we have to constantly evolve. We can't sit outside of the process. We have to be in the actual selection, testing, deployment process. And that means that we have to help teach. And that's just, otherwise we will always be behind the curve 30 days out or what we're, or even further out. Mm-hmm. What do you both envision as a way to do this? Because again, it's nice to say that they need more training, but how do you envision like a perfect scenario if you could build up, you know, that risk compliance team? How would it, what would it look like? Well, how would it function within the organization? Well, one of the things that we've implemented is we don't uh, provide guidance without an architecture diagram, right? There's just no way, to your point earlier, you cannot tell how the data is moving, flowing, who's accessing it without that. So that's number one, make sure you're really, you're assessing based on design versus on a one-dimensional policy. Second is constant training. Like we we just do pop-up training now. Like there's things happening and changing so fast. Mm. Yeah, we just do pop up. Okay. Hey guys, this is it. This is the latest you know, this, <laughs> this coming through. Here's what you got to do. You know, so, you, you know, nano, what is that called? Nano learning. And then really tight partnerships, just, you know, establishing a, a strong partnership with the head of uh, product, the head of network, because, you know, we all carry that load. So what does it mean for them to catch and identify things? At the end of the day, nobody wants to be the source of why there was a breach. So, yeah, it, it behooves us all to really take ownership. I have to agree on that, uh, Beth Ann. We've all got to take that ownership. And and I think for for me, Albert, you asked what is what is what does it look like? Um, what does best practice look like? I, and I was thinking about this prepping for this conversation as well. And and two things that have popped into my mind is is, is I think for many companies, there's well, many organisations, there's the need to find what good practices and what best practices to find them both. And then actually understand what the balance in the middle is. So for many, best practice is an expensive utopia that they may not get to, but but good enough might actually be more than where they are today. Uh, and I'll use another example of another client that I was, I was working with recently. They're a software developer. And because of the nature of their business, they still have a need for USB keys. We won't go into the why. We won't go into the tools that I'm likely to encourage them to move towards to remove that. But they were concerned about the, the risk around USB keys. And they asked, should they be blacklisting them and then having their IT manager uh, enable a USB key when it's needed? And I said, look, if, if it's the nature of your business, if they've been plugged in, good practice is not to blacklist them. Good practice is to put a vulnerability scan across every USB device that's plugged in and have an antivirus tool that can actually handle that so that before they can access it, it's scanned and at least cleared and you're comfortable. And then explaining to your people that this, this is the trade-off we're making, that it might take you a minute longer to do something when you plug that stick in but the alternative is you have to go and seek permission to do it. And who's <laughs> going to get permission? Here? Can I plug this? Can I plug this USB stick in? No, oh. no one's going to do that. No one's going to do that. Damn it! <laughs> so find that balance of good practice and best practice, and and then work out what's what's right for you. But also, there's another point, and this is this probably ties right into that nano learning concept: is that there's no such thing as done when it mm. comes to cybersecurity. Yeah. yeah, you arrive at your destination, but you have not finished. You've just you've got to, just got to keep investing and keep investing. And and I liken this back to. Over a decade ago, there was the, the 
culture towards uh, green star rated buildings. And buildings were given a five star green rating. Someone would come through with a clipboard and tick all the boxes and say, this meets the, the needs. And then the tenants would move in and they'd bring all their energy and efficient fridges and servers and everything else. Yeah. And suddenly the building's no longer five-star energy rated. Yeah. <laughs> Cybersecurity is the same. Don't, you know, if, if you go to bed at night thinking my business is, is safe and secure and everything's perfect and, and I'm never going to be hacked, man, I got news for you. <laughs> <laughs> You're creating dread right out the gate for some of the small business operators. They're like, you know, you mentioned some of these policies, procedures, technologies, investments. And they're thinking, man, I just, I just want to make, you know, I just want to make cups. Like I'm just, I'm a cup business. Like, why do I got to do all this, man? <laughs> do you see a future where security and compliance teams specific, their sole job will be to vet technologies that may or may not be currently purchased or on, even on the procurement radar, but just to be like, would it fit in our stack or not? Do you see that? Or is there just too many things to vet like that? Well, I, at least in, in our space, we're doing that now. Wow. I've told my team, we are fabric. We can no longer have like a five-year technical investment roadmap. It's got to be two to three years. Chop, chop. You know, got to turn it, turn it, turn it yep. to move at the pace <laughs> of the business. So yeah, we, we are inviting, you know, new tech in so that we can start to see what is out there, what can interpret the needs and the demands of the digital services and capabilities especially around the movement of, of information and data. I mean, that's really where it is. Uh, until the vendors that support us become more savvy on data-centric security solutions versus endpoint, you, you know, or, you, you know, obviously a combination of both, but we have to have more data-centric capabilities, especially, you know, with the um, share, you know, APIs, you know, with the sharing of information through these APIs in, in S3 buckets or, not to name one particular cloud solution, but the sharing of, of cloud solutions through integration. Yeah, it just we have to we we need that that additional transparency. Well, Beth, then you just kind of hit the you just kind of hit it right there because I I I, pro, I know Axiom's got a is using something right now, and probably all of your clients are Anthony like where they're using a cloud solution. They might be sitting standing behind like the cloud security. Oh, AWS or GCP, Azure, they're all secure. Look at this, but that vendor. Is taking business data, moving it into a cloud, maybe relying on the service of another cloud. So it moved to another cloud, right? <laughs> and then, <laughs> which then is, and then on that service is actually running through a SaaS, subcontracted SaaS. I call it subcontracted SaaS because, like, uh, a simple example is like a lot of like uh, creative suite tools, they'll still rely on like an Adobe filter or like, you know, some other, it's like they're moving that data through another tool and it moves it right back. And so you think that you have a relationship one-to-one with your vendor, like, oh, this is a strong, secure data relationship, but it's actually moving through quite a bit of something else mm. before it ever comes back that you don't know about. Yeah. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. That's why, that's why data-centric security capabilities will be a hot demand as we look at new tech and new vendors moving forward. And I think sovereignty is going to play a big part of it for particularly regulated industries, whether it be yep. um, health, finance, you know, energy, energy, countries that have strong rules and regulations around where data can and can't go is going to play a big part in this. And, and some of the bigger cloud tools do have geofencing on where your data can be held, but certainly coming from the banking industry, there were real concerns around cloud storage uh, across Australia and New Zealand. Most New Zealand banks are owned by Australian banks. 
um, <laughs> except for one. Uh, do I, no, it's not true. There's about five that aren't owned by Australian banks, but but most of our market is dominated by Australia. So we adhere to the regulations as well. And going back a few years, I, I don't know if this has changed, but cert- well, it's unlikely to have. Certainly, there, were, there was an aversion towards um, data centers that were too close to China. Yep. And there was an aversion towards data centers that were inside the United States as well. Oh, why is that? Well, the, the reason behind that was, uh, and, and I don't know the full ins and outs of it, but it was it was the, the the Patriot Act. Oh, yeah. Okay. The United States government had, and some of the controls that gave America to be able to take control of data if they needed to. So there was an aversion to that in the finance sector. Don't know if that's changed. But that's going to play a big part of it as well. And particularly, uh, the more connected we get, the more averse our regulators are going to be to, to where data can and can't go. And I think, coming back into your question there, I think we actually do need to be looking at, at the SAS tool. And instead of saying, well, it's, it's not on-prem, so someone else is taking care of security, we've actually got to look at that a bit more maturely and say, how good is their security? Yeah. How good have their controls been? Um, because we could lose our information. Yeah, and that's how we have to think about relationships. I mean, one of the things that I'd like to do is, is build a relationship with the CISOs of the companies that we engage with. You know, I, I, I call them and say, hey, let's get together. Let's talk about what's your process, what's my process, how do you defend, how, do we, how are we going to connect with each other in a time of an incident, you know, how do we collaborate. But yeah, it's definitely a dynamic that's changing, forcing the way we, we change the way we work together. Mm. All the while that there's that person, that business owner that's like, hey, Beth Ann, Anthony, can you make this happen a little faster? I want to implement this technology. Yeah. <laughs> I, got, I got a project deadline to hit. That doesn't go away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's another thing that is is becoming more prevalent and it's going to make its way into every piece of business, which is IoT, connected devices, sensors, uh, especially we're seeing it a lot in manufacturing uh, where, you know, different robots are now talking through your network, providing data, manufacturing data, supply chain data, also all for the purposes of, you know, better, more efficient operations. So those are going to open even more gateways because now you have, you kind of talked about it, Beth Ann, like every IoT device is now a dual endpoint problem, potentially. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, and and IoT isn't what IoT used to be, what, almost three, four years ago, IoT was, oh, you're going to have this refrigerator. No, (laughs) everything is an IoT. Yeah. (laughs) What's your perspective on how do you, how do we protect? So like, look, if I if I have a script or a nefarious program that I like, you said highly sophisticated, it's still got to get in your systems first. Well, IoT means every single thing you have there is a gateway. Yeah. Mm. How are you thinking of how to protect the sure proliferation of IoT inside of Axiom? You know, how are you thinking of how do you how do you protect information data when these more and more connected devices are going to enter your uh, your walls? Yeah. Well, I I run around you know, sort of twitching as if, no, uh, <laughs> seriously, this is, this is the thing that you have to evolve your thought process. My, my, my latest um, sort of banter with the team is like my API connection, you know, back in the day it was ports, you know, what ports are open? When's the last time you checked the port? Like the whole, the whole, you know, your, your periodic review is all based on, then it was, you know, firewalls and ports and firewalls. Now it's ports, firewalls and APIs, right? So my, my new headache is my API connections, right? So, uh, you know, it, it's the constant, constant evolving. Listen, it's, if you do the basics right, like we, our whole focus is just folk, get those basics, get them down, keep them consistent. You drill, do your drills, practice over and over and over again. If we are going 
can and making sure we study and analyze using the architecture diagrams. There's a diagram that diagrams tell a story. And if you can't read a diagram, then you may not be understanding where your risk is. And then if you are, you know, looking at those diagrams and you start asking your questions around, well, how, you know, how was this connection configured? How often are we testing? I mean, you just have to keep going in and you read it like a detective. So it is creating more of a capacity issue, which um, my leadership team and I are actively talking right now around balancing and prioritizing work. You got to get in, you got to assess it, you got to get out, you got to give guidance and let's go. But you just have to move at the speed of of the technology. And I think that's the only thing I can say Mm. to your point, um, maybe what Anthony was saying earlier, or maybe it was you, Albert, (laughs) it doesn't stop. Like there's no vacation. Like I, like somebody asked me, like, well, as I was on vacation, I came off vacation. I'm like, I'm not, I'll, I'll take vacation when I retire. <laughs> <laughs> so you're one of those, you're, you're on vacation, but you're kind of checking in the whole time. Yeah, I'm always checking in. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, go away. <laughs> the attackers don't sleep. No, exactly. Yeah. So it, how would you recommend handling this? Because, uh, you know, like, you, like, like it, it's not going to stop. There's going to be more endpoints and gateways inside your walls to defend than ever more and more and and there's i mean there's there's so many ways of of looking at this and i think the first thing that comes back to it is just because you can attach that thing to the internet doesn't mean you should Mm. Um, (laughs) and you said it a few years ago there's the um we saw the smart refrigerators and the smart washing machines you know the washing machine that would send you an alert to your phone to let you know that it had finished it's like but if i'm in my house my washing machine beeps I know it's finished. Yeah. I'm not that far away from it. If I'm not in my house, there's nothing I can do about it not working. Yeah, it's it's finished. Well, I I remember hearing the stories of um baby monitors connected to the cloud and people would oh, mess with yeah. them. Yeah. People would mess with them like wake up babies or like just yeah. yeah. Like take I mean, I don't even want to know what people were doing with this information or getting access to these endpoints. Like uh, I was like this I was like, we're not we're not putting a baby monitor in our house. Yeah. <laughs> They, they weren't the only ones. I remember it being at a, um, a Microsoft Ignite conference a few years ago when they were they were still running them. And um, there's a couple of guys here in New Zealand who do a really good session on security, and they they show how things can be hacked. And mm-hmm. and they they showed they didn't show baby monitors, but they showed one uh, internet connected teddy bear, yeah, which had a microchip in it that you could play, you could load a file to it, and mm. it would read the file. So you were loading a plain text file, alarm bells right there, in, into a teddy bear. And it would just read that. This sounds too easy. Oh, it was so easy because not only was it a plain text file, but the password to get there was stored in plain text as well. So <laughs> that was just so easy. And, and then they also showed, um, and, and we're talking consumer level stuff here, obviously, but they, yeah. they showed out of the States uh, a rifle, which someone had engineered that they'd created a connection between the site and the internet. So the, the, this rifle was internet connected and their intent was, that they could use all the settings from the internet to weather, wind, range, all the rest to automatically focus and sight that rifle in. And uh, it, would, it, would, it would shoot true and everything. And they showed how easy that thing was to hack because what the people had, had built was they hadn't taken a security first approach to it. They'd taken a functional first approach. Mm-hmm. And they showed just how, how, how freakishly bad it could be that the site would tell you you're on target, but your rifle was pointing five or six degrees off to the left and you wouldn't have known it. Mm. And there's risks right there. So I get like it could cause an accident 
Horrific, something horrific. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. What happened? So it comes down to just because you can connect something to the internet doesn't mean you should. But I also, I, I look at the other side of IoT, um, which, which gets thrown around, which is shadow tech. Is shadow tech bad? Is shadow tech good? I've, I've kind of built this view over time that, that shadow tech exists because the technology department can't deliver what the business needs to do their job. Mm-hmm. And define shadow tech real quick. So shadow tech, it's those systems that pop up in your, your business that you haven't authorized or that they haven't been centrally authorized and they're being used. To- oh, that's how, that's how everyone, we, we talked about that. Oh yeah, people always go around systems. Like yep. that's kind of, we've always been that way. <laughs> Humans kind of- They've kind of like, if I have a job to do and I've been given a toolkit to do the job, but I think my other toolkit's better at it, yep. I'm just going to use the better one, even though it's not authorized, because my job performance will make up for it. It's fine. 100%. And, and if you haven't stopped me from using it, then, hey, that's your problem, not mine. Um, <laughs> where I sort of built the view on shadow tech is shadow tech, the technology itself is not inherently bad. It's the fact that you may be moving data um, into an uncontrolled environment mm-hmm. that you have no visibility of anymore. Yeah. So... IoT, shadow tech, it doesn't matter. For me, the control becomes make sure you manage and own a central source of your data and that's where everything goes. So if someone wants to plug in a new building sensor that's taking temperature readings or, or, or whatever, great. But they don't build their own database off the back of that. They've got to share that with the existing information that's there and it's got to be done securely and that's the bit we want to assess because at the end of the day, as you say, people will find a way around it. We can't stop them. You just hinted at another thing, which is continue. I see more database companies popping up all the time because management of this amount of records is just getting harder and harder. Right. <laughs> like you, you'd be like, have we solved the database yet? It's like, no, we haven't. Because these <laughs> new startups every day, like, hey, I can do a database better than you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, Beth and Anthony, I want to thank you both for joining us today on IT Visionaries. It was awesome having you both on the show. Thank you. Sharing your wisdom, sharing your knowledge and sharing your opinions on how we can make things better. It sounds like you both unanimously agree that you're probably never, you're actually never secured. It is an everyday thing. And the only way to get better at it is to build a culture that thinks security first, which, you know, that's where businesses need to invest. Like you gotta be security first, not, hey, like you said, four days to project go live. (laughs) Hey, Beth Ann, check this out. It's good, right? Give me a thumbs up. Uh, Yeah, right. No. (laughs) Well, thank you, Albert. Really appreciate the ability to collaborate with you and, and Anthony as well. Likewise. Thanks, thanks, Albert, for the opportunity and, and also talking uh, with you, uh, Beth Ann, and, and, and just hearing some of your stories. It's been great. Yes, yes, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Surely a lot of wisdom to share. Thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this episode.